We are live. Shalom, Caroline. Good to see you again, Avi. It has been a while. Indeed. It's good to be back in your uh, dining room. <laughs> yes, at my dining table. Yes. <laughs> so we went from the craziness of the world turning topsy-turvy because of a virus, now to the craziness of the world turning topsy-turvy because of a war between Ukraine and Russia. And I'd love to hear your feedback, uh, one, because of the war, two, because of the unprecedented steps the United States and NATO and the Western world are taking against Russia. Just yesterday, we were, it was forbidden to say the Wuhan virus, because that's racist against all Chinese, and all of a sudden, the whole diplomatic world and business world is taking this, they're, 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 they're everything out against every single Russian and all Ru Russian citizens, the whole, the whole society. What is going on? Well, I think, first of all, you're right. We're living in, a, in an era of great turbulence. We're living in a world right now where we're seeing a reorganization of the balance of powers, if you will, or the imbalance of powers, where you have a Western world led by the United States that seems to be completely uninterested in defending its national interests or even its uh, block interests as what we called the free world during the Cold War. Um, against rising axis of China and Russia and Iran. And in each one of these areas, we see that the, that the, sort of the, the establishment, the ruling classes of Western societies are, are, are in practice not raising a finger against each one of these rising powers while talking very angrily about at least some of their aggression. So it's a very strange situation that we find ourselves in um, because we see increased aggression by Russia, by Iran, by China when we're, we're, we're running this show now on Sunday morning. And uh, early in the hours of Sunday at 1.20 in the morning, Baghdad time, Iran attacked the US consulate in Erbil with missiles. And you know, there, there are obviously contradictory reports. We're only a few hours after the attack, but one of the ones that I saw was a U.S. official being quoted saying that it wasn't an attack directed against the United States. I mean, so there's a lot of disinformation and misinformation, but these kinds of statements by U.S. officials are things that we've become almost used to, which is that the United States is attacked by Iran, whether it's U.S. forces in the UAE, U.S. forces in Tanf in Syria, or now uh, U.S. diplomatic personnel at the consulate in Erbil, and the Americans are pretending it away because in the meantime, they're trying desperately to reach a deal with Iran that will transform Iran into a global hegemon or a regional hegemon and a nuclear armed state. So it's like, why would the United States be doing any of these things? Last week, there was a report that the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps was trying, is planning, is plotting the assassination of former National Security Advisor John Bolton. They've already been in, implicated in the attempted assassination of former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Both men are receiving Secret Service protection as former senior officials who are, have credible and ongoing threats against their lives from Iran. These are acts of war by Iran on, that they want to perpetrate on American soil. And the Biden administration decided not to indict the, the IRGC officers who are, who are behind these efforts to assassinate U.S. persons on U.S. soil. Again, it's an act of war by, by U.S. law. 
And so they're ignoring these acts of war against US forces in Syria, in Iraq, in the UAE. They're enabling the Iranians to plot the assassination of US citizens on American soil. So that's Iran, right? And then vis-a-vis -vis China, like you said, you know, for two years, the establishment in the United States was attacking anybody, silencing on, uh, online and yep. all the rest of it. People who were pointing out that the virus originated in China, that it looked like a deliberate action in some form or another, direct or, un or otherwise. I mean, the Chinese knew that it was transmittable uh, from pe person to person for a month before they acknowledged it. In the meantime, they pushed the, the, the population of Wuhan abroad, right, and never told anybody. So they were actively exporting this pandemic worldwide and denying through the WHO and directly that they were involved in it. And then you had the Democrats and the establishment in the United States, Facebooks, the Twitters of the world that were censoring anybody who was pointing this out. Why would they do that? You know, and so all of these things are very strange. And in the meantime, the Democrats joined the Republicans in saying that China is the gravest rising threat to U.S. national security, to U.S. economy, et cetera, et cetera. And they're making all of these statements indicating that they understand that. And yet they just allowed China to get away with the murder of two million people through, through the virus that they exported deliberately. And I would say with, with malign intent, because again, they actively hid the fact that they knew already, which was that COVID-19 uh, moves from person to person. So again, you see these loud uh, protestations of being anti-Chinese by US leaders, particularly uh, on the progressive left, but also you know, the establishment Republicans. And then that, that they're conjoined with these very large corporations that control our freedom of speech, that they have an unprecedented monopoly on information. And then vis-a-vis -vis Russia, you know, the United States made itself dependent on Russia for its appeasement efforts towards Iran, right? So Russia, Mikhail Ulyanov, who's the head of the Russian delegation in the talks in Vienna that are apparently about to be concluded, um, he's really run the talks. Um, uh, I wrote about a month ago, um, Jawad Zarif, Iran's former foreign minister, wrote a book about the JCPOA, the 2015 nuclear deal, where Robert Malley was a senior American negotiator. And Robert Malley, you know, it's very normal in policy circles in the United States that somebody works for a think tank and then that's aligned with one or the other parties. And then when the party comes into office, they take these think tankers and they put them in senior positions because they're experts and they're recognized as experts. And, and that's all very reasonable. So the out of government perch that Robert Malley has established for himself is at an organization called the International Crisis Group. And he had senior positions there. And then after he served in the Obama administration in 2016, he went there and he became the president of the ICG. And there was, uh, there's a man who's been working there for many years named Ali Vayez, who's an Iranian national uh, son of immigrants to the United States. And uh, Vayez is very close to Zarif. In fact, you know, he's known in the Iranian government and the Iranian press as being Zarif's guy, okay? Um, I don't remember the exact terminology, but that he's his man or his protege or something like that. So uh, Vayez worked for Mali. And, um, and in 2014, what Zarif wrote in his book was that Vayez 
that, that Iran in 2014, the regime, the foreign ministry, Zarif and his team, put together their dream agreement, right? And there were a lot of things in the JCPOA that were stunning. The most important one was that the United States allowed Iran, permitted Iran to continue enriching uranium. To be clear, Iran's entire nuclear operation is illicit. It's illegal because Iran is a signatory of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. So they're not allowed to do any of the things that they were doing. It's all illegal. Uh, they're treaty bound, they were treaty bound not to do any of these things. So it was a, this, one of the weirdest, stunning, most dangerous aspects of the 2015 deal was that the United States allowed Iran to continue enriching uranium, which was a complete breach of the NPT. So the Iranians said, Zarif wrote that in 2014, the Iranians put together their dream agreement and they wanted to sell it to the West. So they gave it to Vallez at the International Crisis Group. And a month later, Vallez puts out this report of the ICG. Um, it's called um, Solving the Rubik's Cube of Iran's Nuclear deal the uh, P5 plus one in Iran, something like that. You can look on my website, carolynglick.com, and get the exact name. So, and, his, and what Zarif wrote in his book was that that paper was the, Iranian, was the Iranian foreign ministry's dream deal. And then Vallez put it out as an international crisis group paper. Wow. And that paper, and then he farmed it out to Mali, his former boss, who was in the Obama administration's National Security Council and a senior negotiator. And then the Americans adopted it. So the Americans started negotiating the JCPOA based on Iranian uh, foreign ministry deal. draft. And it was all laundered through Mali's colleague. Today, now fast forward to 2022. So... The Iranians refuse to sit in a room with the United States, right? So you have to have these indirect negotiations, and you need these mediators to go between the Iranians and the Americans. So obviously, the mediators are the most important people there. Mali appointed two. The first one is Vallez, mm -hmm. okay? And the second, that is the Iranians, uh, foreign, former, former minister, foreign minister Jawad Zarif's protege, who already laundered one Iranian draft agreement, and Mikhail Ulyanov, the Russian ambassador, the head of the Russian delegation. And what sources inside of the US delegation uh, leaked out was that Ulyanov is running the talks. And Ulyanov said last week that the Iranians received much more than they could ever have imagined in these talks. Well, no wonder, because Ulyanov is running them, together with an Iranian regime agent, apparently, according to the Iranian regime itself, Rob Malley's colleague from the ICG, Ali Vayez. So that's the deal that the Americans are doing. They're empowering the Russians. So now you have the latest iteration was that the Russians said, well, we want our, our um, sanctions, the sanctions that the Americans are placing on Russia ostensibly for invading Ukraine. We want to have our operations with Iran be immune from the sanctions. And there's like this big crisis. It's all manufactured uh, between uh, the Americans and the Russians, and the talks were suspended at the end of last week. But again, this is all, all manipulation. It's all a hat trick because Russia is in charge of implementing the nuclear restrictions on Iran. The, the Iranians are supposed to move their enriched uranium, their excess enriched uranium, to Russia. 
So these are all moneymaker deals. And if Iran now is going to have all the sanctions removed on its financial operations and on its, uh, or largely removed on, on much of its, uh, of its um, and, sorry, and, and removed on its oil and gas exports. So now all Russia has to do is launder them through Iran, and then it's all fungible. So that essentially the Iran deal is also a way to effectively abrogate the financial sanctions on Russia. It's crazy. And I just want to raise like the elephant in the room that I have rarely seen anyone talk about in the media. Here, America and the West are sending up warning signals. A nuclear Russia is a danger, right? This whole situation between Ru- Ukraine and Russia right. is a danger, right? By the way, they're right. It's a terrible danger, right? 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 So at the same time, they're sending out, oh my God, a nuclear Russia is a danger to humanity. America is renewing the Iran nuclear deal to allow the biggest state's terror of the whole world right. to have nuclear weapons. Well, at the same time, they want to punish Russia, as we spoke about before, <laughs> and everyone, and yet they're in talks where Russia is a partner in talks with Iran. None of that makes sense. No. I mean, it, it doesn't. And, and that's the thing. So you were talking, we, we initially discussed you know, the turbulence in the world and how everything seems to be, we're moving from one um, unprecedented crisis to another unprecedented crisis. And all of them are throwing humanity on the preci- onto the precipice of, of utter disaster, right? Um, and, and you see the Western elites are refusing to deal with it while screaming that they are dealing with it, right? And, right. And, but, but mainly what they're dealing with is silencing their political opponents. And uh, I mean, you know, there, there's, it, it, it's very difficult to point to one thing and say, okay, this is it, because there are so many smoking guns that show that something is awry. Right. I mean, you can just take the Trump-Russia thing, right? And, and Ukraine's very large role in the, in the Democrats' whole disinformation campaign yep. that was aimed at uh, criminalizing Donald Trump from the outset. I mean, the Ukrainians, what was Trump's first impeachment? It was very weird, right? I mean, the, the Democrats and the U- Ukrainian regime are, are almost like one in the same. It's like the Ukrainian regime is a subcontractor for the Democrats' political warfare against the Russians. But then the, I mean, but, but, but then the, the Americans need the Russians for Iran. Right. So it's like they use the Ukrainians. They promise the Ukrainians NATO membership. They promise the Ukraine, even just as recently as like December, you know, they kept promising all of these. When Kamala Harris talked about it when she was at the Munich Security Conference just before the Russian invasion. And it was all a lie, right? I mean, because, and if it's not a lie, it's even worse. Because if they actually want, in the middle of a Russian invasion, to say that Ukraine is going to become a, a member of NATO, then NATO is, is declaring war on Russia. And then you really are in World War III. Right. I mean, even, and, and, and it's like the Americans are pushing other countries into war with Russia. We saw that last right. week as well with Poland, where, the, the, where Blinken said, uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken said that the, that the, uh, Poles are going to be giving the Ukrainians MiGs from their arsenal, and in exchange, the United States was going to give them F-16s. Well, if if Poland starts arming Ukraine with fighter jets, then that makes them a party to the war effort, and that means that they are suddenly open to Russian 
assault, right? And so the polls very deftly uh, were able to parry that and say to the Americans, look, if you want the MiGs, we're going to send them to Ramstein U.S. Air Base in Germany, and you can do whatever you want with them. But you're not going to implicate Poland and leave us hanging because we see what you're doing to Ukraine, right? We're not going to go to war against Russia for you. You know, if you want to go to war with Russia, fine. That's a NATO policy. You make it. But don't hide behind Poland. And that's exactly what the Americans were doing. So there's a lot of weird stuff. The Americans essentially invited the Russians to invade Ukraine. And now they're making these, these on the, they're, they're waging financial warfare, which is seemingly total war against Russia from a financial perspective. But then you see that they're opening a back door with the with with their push to remove Iranian uh, the same sanctions on Iran and then Iran and and Russia are in partnership so it's and by the way this whole thing uh, pushes Russia into China's arms in right. a way that nothing else ever did so it's it's like the Americans are also undermining the dollar-based financial system right. I mean I don't know that it'll break it's very strong but you know the the Chinese alternative to SWIFT I don't remember what it's called. But they only formed it. They only started operating it like a year ago. And so it has, a, like, I think, um, a tenth or, or a, somewhere between a tenth and a fifth of the daily traffic of SWIFT. But it's only been up for a year. Right, but I have heard that already Brazil, India, and right. some other countries around the world have already signed on to join it if it, uh, if it takes off. And it makes sense because they want to continue to trade with Russia. Right. You know, they have huge amounts of trade with Russia. And if the Americans are saying that you can't use SWIFT to perform trading functions with Russia, then all of the countries that want to continue to receive energy, to, have, uh, to, to receive exports and, and import their goods into Russia are going to need an alternative to SWIFT. So, so, so the Americans, by using SWIFT as a, as a tool of war, are actually undermining their own dominance of the global financial system, which, again, is an incredibly destabilizing action. And part of you thinks these people are just stupid because it's so dumb. And part of you says, well, no, it, like all of this taken together looks like these people in the Biden administration are actually trying to undermine American power and endanger the United States physically. Well, I wanted to ask you, I, I want to get to Israel, but very quickly before touching upon Israel, I mean, I, I saw a video recently, which I just showed you, which, which was of Lindsey Graham and John McCain back in 2016 in Ukraine, telling them, we stand behind you in a, in a war that's going to take place to go on the offensive of Ukraine against Russia. Mm. And a lot of people are really confused. Wait a second. Why, why are you blaming President Trump, because that's what the Democrats are doing on the one hand, when here you had during the Obama-Biden, this is 2016, the, drum, the war drums were beating about a potential war between Ukraine and Russia. During the four years of Trump, there was no war, right? That was the safest and quietest period between Russia and United States relations. All of a sudden, the Obama-Biden doctrine is back under a Biden presidency, and now we have almost World War III. I don't know, why are people supposed to be thinking about what's going on? I, I mean, it, it's very disturbing. I, the video that you showed me isn't spread. Look, I mean, from a traditional U.S. foreign policy perspective, you could say that the United States, speaking to a former uh, Republic of the Soviet Union and say, we're going to protect you from Russia, sounds normal, right? I mean, Russia and the United States were enemies for 70 years or so during the Cold War. And so it's almost a knee-jerk American foreign policy position to say we're going to fight Russia. I mean, it just seems like 
the normal, right? Because you had a bipolar world for many, many years from the end of World War II until 1991, effectively, where you had the United States pitted against the Soviets, right? So not seven, seven uh, decades, four decades. Right. And so it, it makes perfect sense that they would say that, right? We're going to protect you. We want to protect. But again, you know, I mean, so much of this, it goes back, and a lot of people have been saying it, and, and I was writing it in 2016 when Trump was speaking out against NATO. He was the first one to question what happened without any debate after the war, after the Cold War was over, which was that both sides of the partisan divide in the United States uh, agreed, without any, seemingly without any debate, that uh, NATO should expand eastward. Okay? I mean, you had this incredibly successful treaty alliance, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, right, which had managed to bring down the Soviet empire. And they had, you know, with obvious uh, pitfalls and fits and starts, but NATO was one of the most successful military alliances, arguably in human history. It worked. And it worked for many reasons we don't need to get into. But once the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union uh, ended, it was, was no more. Uh, then the question that should have been asked in Washington was, do we need NATO? What's NATO's role in a post-Soviet world? Um, particularly with German reunification as a Western state. And there was never really any debate about that. It was always taken for granted that NATO should continue to exist and then expand, and expand to the former Warsaw uh, Pact nations, uh, and you know, Hungary, and, and Poland, and the Czech Republic, and, and expand into the former Soviet republics, the Baltic states, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, um, and holding out promises to Georgia, and holding out promises to Ukraine that they will join NATO. This was all just by both the Clinton administration and the, and the uh, but, but the Bush administration, and then equally by the Obama administration, was just taken for granted. But it, it was taken for granted in a sort of superficial kind of way. Like, why does the United States really intend to fight a war against Russia to protect Poland? Do you really think that the disarray of the Red Army that existed in 1991 was always going to be the case, that the Red Army would not rebuild, that Russia would not be resurgent at any point in the future, because treaties are forever, right? I mean, if you're making a treaty obligation, if you're signing a treaty that obliges you to defend Poland or to defend uh, the Baltic states against Russia, you know, what? That, that's a treaty that you're supposed to be obligated to uh, in perpetuity. Uh, and are you, did nobody think that Russia might not want to be a basket case for the rest of its life? That was the problem, was that in the early 90s, you had people like Francis Fukuyama, and he wasn't alone, saying this is the end of history. All of the ideological fights of the 20th century are behind us. Liberal democracy has emerged victorious, and therefore we don't have to worry about anything ever again. And now it's all just about open markets, uh, free trade, the World Trade Organization, and you had all of these organizations that now, in retrospect, look more like the aspirational dis diplomacy after World War One. You know, and you had the Kellogg-Briand Pact that outlawed war. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, these were 
And, and it was all based upon this idea that the unipolar war, world where the United States was really the only man standing uh, was going to be going on forever, and that was it. And the funny thing is that they did have a window of opportunity when Putin came into office initially. I mean, you can take it for what it is, but you know, this former KGB colonel who took over because of the power vacuum and Yeltsin's incredible drunkenness and corruption, um, he wanted to join NATO, <laughs> you know, I mean, he... Well, I don't he, remember that. Yeah, he asked to join NATO. And, you know, the Americans brushed him aside and expanded NATO around Russia. And so they, they oh. just sort of brushed him off and they treated him with contempt and they didn't listen to him. And, and you can, you know, you can go through a number of things that many people have enumerated in recent weeks since the invasion of all of the things that the United States did that showed bad faith towards Russia and increase the hostility, the Russian nationalists, the fascists, the uh, communists, or you know whatever you want to call it, hostility towards the West by Russians, by Putin and his circle, by Russian ruling classes, however you want to define that regime. Um, and they, and they, they felt very insulted and disgusted and endangered by the West that was treating them flippantly and hostily. So they're, and the West was completely ignoring this. And in the meantime, you had people all along in the United States who continued to treat Russia in the 2000s as if it was Russia in the 1960s and 70s and, right. and, and not think about what would be a reasonable relationship between the United States and Russia in any really serious way. So I think that this war that we're seeing now between uh, with, with Russia really pulverizing Ukraine in a terrible, terrible way, and, and a terrifying way, really, for anybody who's watching, um, it, it, it's, uh, it's not just a product of Putin being evil. It's also a function of Putin being dismissed and held in contempt and endangered in his perception by the West. And, you know, actions have consequences. And we're seeing that when you make a strategic policy based on no strategic thinking or considerations or understanding that world events and the world and humanity never stand still and that the, the earth is a, is a dynamic place, then you're going to pay consequences down the road. And that's what we're seeing now. Yeah, and no, it's an important point you're making because, again, we just went through two years of... of um, all talk or all media talk about the virus and all the treatments, etc., was total censorship. Only one storyline was accepted by the, the accepted narrative that was pushed on the public. Now we're talking about a Ukraine-Russia mess where, again, the media is giving such a simplistic good guy, bad guy narrative without any complexities. And the little I've read up on this, there are a lot of complexities, and you, and, and, and you touched upon some of them. <coughs> is, but... Um, uh, I want to go, to go on to Israel for a second, because here we have Israel's prime minister, Naftali Bennett, who's put himself in the middle as a potential healer, trying to come across to dialogue between both sides. I want to hear what you have to say. Is that good or bad for Israel? Because on the one hand, we have our interests. We, we, we can't piss off. We, we don't want to piss off America. We don't want to piss off Russia. Russia's in charge of, of Syria and the relations with Iran. And we got to protect Israel from that perspective. We don't want to piss off, piss off America because obviously they're our strongest ally in, in, in many ways. But is it good or bad for Israel that 
our prime minister has put himself in the middle of this because little by little we're getting headlines. Ukraine's attacking us right and left, think, even though we're trying to help them. Look, I, I mean, it's, it's terrible and stupid on, on two levels. The first level is what you're talking about. It's the direct damage that we're doing because, you know, to be a mediator, a real mediator but in, between two warring factions, I mean, you need leverage against both of them because what is a mediator's job? A mediator's job is to force people who are at war or in conflict to compromise with one another. And um, that means that you have to force them to do something that they don't want to do. They wouldn't be fighting one another if they wanted to compromise with one another, right? I mean, they, that I, if, if Russia wanted to deal with Ukraine, then why did it just send two-thirds of its army to invade and to pulverize Ukraine? Um, and why is Ukraine fighting back? Why don't they just lie down? So to, to actually mediate a deal, you have to have leverage over both to force them to compromise. And of course, Israel has no leverage over either Ukraine and Russia. So this is just stupid, right? I mean, why would you, why would you put yourself into this position? Because then automatically you make them both angry at you, right? So Ukraine is angry at, at Bennett for not being sufficiently pro-Ukrainian, and we're seeing that play out in a million different ways. With, I mean, their, their ambassador to Israel should be persona non grata. He should have been thrown out of the country two weeks ago for the way that he's attacking our country. Oh, yeah. But, um, I mean, and their foreign minister as well. And, and why does Zelensky want to address the Knesset? What in the hell... Does he have, we're not involved, you know, stop talking as though Israel and Jerusalem are the center of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, this is stupid stuff. Right. And yet Bennett enabled this. He facilitated, he, he invited this, right? Because he put himself into the middle of somebody else's war. Israel only has one interest in Ukraine, and it's the only one that this government is not talking about, which is to save the Jews. Because Ukraine is a very Nazi country. I mean, so Russian propaganda is propaganda, but that doesn't mean that Ukraine isn't riddled with actual Nazis, all right? And there's some crazy stuff going on there. The Azov Battalion is a Nazi force inside of the Ukrainian military, all right? They, they, are, they are units, active units in the fighting all over the country and, and in Kharkiv and in, and in eastern Ukraine. And they're engaged in battle, and the United States is training them. I saw a picture uh, the other day of a U.S. Special Forces trainer training the Azov battalions, Nazi forces, in the use of javelin missiles to down Russian aircraft, okay? These are crazy things that are going on. Ukraine is not Israel's friend. So now we have to understand that in the eyes of Nazis, there's no difference between uh, Naftali Bennett and the Chabad house in Kharkiv or in Lviv or anywhere else in, mm. in Ukraine. So he's placing in jeopardy the only people that we're supposed to care about in this entire conflict, and those are the Jews of Ukraine, and to, and to an increasing degree as well, the Jews of Russia. You, you get authoritarian governments and Nazi uh, societies uh, angered at you, the prime minister of the Jewish state, you are placing in jeopardy the Jews of those countries. So that's what's so crazy. Israel should be, you know, if, 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 uh, if we had any wisdom in our foreign policy making, which we don't, Israel would be silent and concentrating on one thing and one thing only, which is getting the maximum number of Jews out of Ukraine as we possibly can, as quietly as possible and as quickly as possible, because 
the other thing that we know from our history, from the history of the Jews of Ukraine, from the history of the Jews of Russia, is that in times of political chaos or instability, the Jews suffer inevitably so, and all the time. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of there was an article in Tablet magazine that came out two weeks ago, um, giving us all of this history that we forget because this this Shoah, you know, it it dominates all the discourse. And, and I'll get to that in one second. But in 1919, 1920, after the Bolshevik Revolution, there was incredible instability in Ukraine. And the Ukrainians, the ones that we're all caring for and saying that to be on the right side of history, you have to be on their side, they murdered 100,000 Jews in pogroms. This is 1920. 1919, 1920 was sort of the setup to the way that the Jews were annihilated during the Holocaust in the Soviet Union, in the areas of the Soviet Union that were conquered by the Nazis. And in terms of the Shoah, you know, Zelensky and Kuleba lied and said that the Russians had damaged the site of Babiar, of the massacre of you know, over 2,000 Jews in one afternoon in, in Ukraine. Um, so A, as Ron Benishai from, from Yidiyot Achronot, he went there to see and there was no damage, right? So that was a lie. Yep. But aside from that, this idea that the Russian, it, it, was, all, it was all a projection because Babiyar massacre was carried out by the, by the Germans and the Ukrainians. There were, there were, there were two, th two million out of the six million Jews who were murdered in the Holocaust were murdered in, in the areas of the Soviet Union that were conquered by the, by this, by the Nazis. And so that's Ukraine, and it's Belarus, and it's portions of Russia, and, and Latvia, and Estonia, and Lithuania. And these two million Jews were not deported to Poland, to Auschwitz. <clears throat> they were killed on the spot. And they were killed largely by their neighbors, at close range, with bullets, and, and, and other means of torture in mass graves all over the place. And um, because of the Cold War and because Stalin you know, supported the Holocaust and all the rest of it, you know, there was never an accounting. There were never Nuremberg trials for the Ukrainians who murdered uh, the Jews or the Estonians or the Lithuanians or so on and so forth. Um, and you, know, you have main squares in Kiev that are named after the Ukrainian Nazi who was involved in the massacre at Babi Yar. So, like, you know, we're looking at societies that never, that never had a moral reckoning with what they did to the Jews. And as a result, there's no real humiliation or shame about hating Jews in these countries. You know, in Germany, they hate Jews, but they pretend that they don't, you know, because they have shame, because they've been shamed by what they did. But you don't have that. You never had that kind of reconciling with their own crimes. Uh, in or accounting or reckoning is the right word, not reconciling. Reckoning with their crimes in okay. in Ukraine, and everybody points to Zelensky as proof that they're no longer anti-Semitic. But you know, Zelensky isn't like the greatest paragon of Judaism. He 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 isn't. I mean, he. Well, there, if I'm not mistaken, he converted to Christianity and he baptized his own kids. I don't know. I know. I don't. Uh, maybe I should look into that. I don't know, but Zelensky is a is a comic, and I saw this American Jewish woman posted on Twitter like it was cool this uh, sketch that he did on Ukrainian television with Ukrainian non-Jews, where <laughs> ostensibly uh, they came onto stage, 
they stood behind a, like a piano, oh. they dropped their pants, okay. and then they played Havanagila with their penises. And she was like, this is so cool. Can you believe it? And yeah, I'm like, are, are you brain dead? You know, this is, in, this is, in, this is an act. so many levels. This is, this is anti-Semitic, you know? So, I mean, hello, right? And this is a guy that we're saying is a new Winston Churchill. God help us. So the point is, you talk about complexity, right? I don't know. I think that what's happening to, you, to the Ukrainians is a terrible thing. You look at the pictures, you look at the footage, you see what the Russians are doing. It's a disaster. But it is not Israel's war. So the fact that Bennett is doing this is completely antithetical to Israel's national interests. And the other thing is that the main stage for Israel is not Ukraine, it's Vienna. Mm -hmm. It's what's happening at the nuclear talks in, in Vienna. So I'm looking at the Israeli journalists. I'm looking at the Israeli newspapers and television studios who are dispatching all of their top reporters to Ukraine and to the borders with Ukraine to cover this story. And the only media organ in Israel that's dispatched a, a reporter to Vienna is Channel 14, the really? new, the new uh, right-wing uh, television channel. One media organization in the entire country is covering the story in Vienna. And what the United States is doing in Vienna with the Russians and the Chinese and the European Union is they are giving Iran a, an open road to becoming a nuclear-armed state and a regional hegemon. They have agreed to give Iran... $90 billion in sanction relief right out of the starting block. This week on my podcast, I'm going to be interviewing Gabriel Naronha, who is the former State Department official who was in charge of Iran's sanctions during the Trump administration, who received uh, details of the, the concessions that Rob mm -hmm. Malley has already made to the Iranians from his former colleagues who are sitting in the, the American delegation and saying that Rob Malley is endangering the United States with what he is doing. And <clears throat> Israel should be ignoring Ukraine because that's not our problem. We're doing the full court press on the, on the exactly. Iran talks in Vienna. So those are the two reasons why what Bennett is doing is, is insane. So I want to touch on a different aspect of, on Israel, and, and, we'll, and we'll end up with that. And it actually starts with Zelensky himself and the Babiar incident. One thing that infuriated me, and I saw no such infuriation from the rest of the leadership of the Jewish-Israel community, which also infuriated me on a second level, when he mentioned the lie about Babi Yar being uh, bombed, he had the audacity to say, it's as if those Holocaust victims buried at Babi Yar were killed a second time. And I don't know about you, but one, he lied, Two, they're dead because of the Holocaust, because of the Nazis and the Ukrainians. And three, real people are being killed today. We, no one cares about a, a memorial being, I'm sorry, a memorial being bombed where people are buried underneath is not them being killed a second time. You could say it's not right. You could say it's a disgrace. It's not them being killed a second time. And yet we see the whole, total quiet, total, total, total crickets from the whole Jewish-Israeli establishment. But it's even worse than that because then we are getting... Um, uh, vilified for not taking in more uh, Ukrainian refugees. Now, forgive me if I'm mistaken here, but most of the Ukrainian refugees, not Jewish or, and Jews, who are leaving Ukraine, they're going into EU countries. Mm -hmm. in Once, NATO countries. They're going into EU NATO countries. Once a Ukrainian is a refugee, then escapes to whether Moldova, Poland, they're then, one, they're no like, they're then 
available to go to any EU country because in the EU you could travel between countries. So they have the, all of Western Europe available to them to resettle if they want to resettle. And yet we are being blamed and we have Jewish organizations and Israeli organizations going on with this, blaming ourselves. No, we should be taking in more Ukrainian refugees. So, again, something is wrong is well, going on. I think on. that Israel was subjected, you know, to put too, not to put too fine a point on it, but I think we were subjected to a regime change. I think, uh, you know, the, the government that we have is very... Uh, is not committed to Israel remaining a Jewish state, to put it mildly. And um, whether you see it in their uh, surrendering effectively of, of sovereignty in the Negev to Ram, which is a Muslim brother party, Brotherhood party that they brought into their government or governing coalition, or whether it's through their willingness to um, pretend that Israel has some responsibility for Ukrainian nationals who are fleeing uh, the war, um, and it, it's it's really diabolical. I mean, you're right. Poland said the Polish uh, the Polish ambassador to the United States. It's like a week ago, so the numbers have changed. Okay, but he was on Wolf Blitzer's show on CNN, and this guy I don't remember his name, but he used to be the Polish ambassador here, and then he was sent to Washington. So he's a top diplomat, and. He told Blitzer that as of the day of the interview, 1.3 million Ukrainians had fled Ukraine. 800,000 of them had made their way to Poland. And Poland had resettled all of them, and that they weren't refugees as far as the Poles were concerned. There were, they didn't need refugee camps because the Poles were so welcoming to the Ukrainians oh, that they, wow. were, they had brought them into dormitories, rooming houses, people's homes, that there's no need for refugee camps to be set up there. There are 28 countries in the EU. There are, in, in, in uh, Europe, there are, there are four NATO member states that border Ukraine. Ukrainians have no trouble whatsoever being resettled anywhere in Europe. So the entire concept of a Ukrainian refugee crisis that Israel is supposed to come in and solve is a complete fabrication of the Israeli media and of the left and of these anti-Zionist ministers inside of the government of Israel today. And so this, this whole thing is made up. I was on a debate. Can um, I add to that as yeah. before you go to the And just in last night's news, the Ukrainian government is now petitioning against Israel and the Israeli courts against the Israeli rules to have Israel bring in more Ukrainian refugees. Right. Just adding so in that's this why craziness. I think that, again, it goes back to Bennett's really um, destructive mediation efforts, but it also goes back to the hostility of the Biden administration towards Israel, which, of course, we see most graphically in the nuclear negotiations, but we see it also here. Because as a colleague of mine in, in Washington explained to me last week, um, you know, due to everything that we saw with the Trump, uh, I mean, we, we saw it exposed in the Trump uh, impeachment, and we've seen it uh, with the, uh, a server issue with the Democratic National Committee in the 2016 elections, which is in Ukraine, right? I mean, all of these weird things. Oh. Ukraine is, again, a subcontractor of the Democratic Party. And the U Ukrainian government under Zelensky is controlled by the State Department in many, many ways. And certainly the Ukrainian foreign ministry is. 
controlled by the Biden administration. So these weird things that we're seeing from Kuleba, the foreign minister who was attacking El Al for accepting okay. um, money uh, through an alternative uh, site from SWIFT for for a Russian for a Russian, Russian for Russian travelers. Um, the, these are actions that are very hostile to Israel, and I don't think that they are uh, born in in Kiev. I think that they're born in in Washington. I think that the United States is setting Israel up very deliberately as a scapegoat uh, to blame us for the war in Ukraine. We're seeing it, and it's totally bizarre and totally crazy, right? Because. Yep. What does this little Jewish state of 9 million have to do with the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Nothing, but look at the press. Right. Israel is being pummeled in the American media um, for being insufficiently anti-Russian. Um, and, you know, this is, as my friend uh, Lee Smith mentioned, you know, uh, and not only him, also Mike Duran, the, the only reason that the Russians are in Syria is because Obama opened the door to the Russians to come in in 2013. And, um, you know, for the first time since 1982, so it's, it's their fault that Israel has to be beholden to Moscow. It wouldn't have happened if the Obama administration had, had, had discouraged in a very significant way Putin from sending his forces to fight with Iran and Hezbollah to protect Assad. But that's what the Obama administration's policy was because it was pro-Iranian and the Iranians needed Russian help. Okay, so we're, we're looking at this malign situation and it's being played out in a number of ways, but one of them is the, is the scapegoating of Israel over Ukraine and the Ukrainian government's incredible hostility towards Israel that doesn't make any, any objective sense, does it? Well, I mean, it's completely irrational. Why would anybody be saying that Israel has to take in Ukrainians? And again, just... Just as a matter of international law, I was talking about it with my friend, uh, Professor Avi Bell, who's an international law expert, and he, and he said that indeed, you know, the international conventions on refugees, a refugee is somebody who, you could have a refugee from Syria to Jordan or whatever, it comes in, or Iraq to Jordan, because they border one another and you're running away, and so you come to Jordan for a refuge. You cannot have a refugee from uh, from uh, France in Latin America because Latin America does not border France, all right? It's only a country that borders you. If you get on a plane in a third country, so you run away from Ukraine, you get to Moldova, or you get to Poland or Hungary, and then you board a flight to Tel Aviv from Budapest, you're not a refugee anymore because you were a refugee when you got to Hungary. But if you're able then from Hungary to move on to a third country, then by the international conventions on refugees, you're not a refugee when you come to Israel. You were a refugee when you went to Hungary. It's Hungary's responsibility to take care of you. It's not Israel's. So Israel isn't talking about helping refugees. It's talking about bringing in non-Jewish immigrants from Ukraine who, again, don't need us at all because there is no refugee crisis. You know, all of these leftists who are attacking people like me and saying that I am like the anti-Semites in the 1930s and 40s who refused to resettle Jews from Germany and then from occupied uh, Europe, they're ignoring 
I mean, they're ignoring the historical record and also the current uh, current realities because mm. the Jews were the only ones who weren't granted a place. I mean, Ukrainians who were running away could resettle anywhere. Yeah, they will Europe. Nobody, Europe. No, but this was not only today is the case, it was also the case in the 1930s. The only people who didn't have anywhere to run in the 1930s and 40s were the Jewish people. Right. And that's why the State of Israel exists. The State of Israel exists in order to ensure that there'll never right. be a Jewish refugee and problem again. That for people, not only did we have nowhere to run to, any country that had the ability to take us in said no well, or turned no us point. away. No, but that was the point. Nobody wanted us. Right. But non-Jews didn't have that problem. Right. And non-Jews don't have that problem today right. either. Right. The Ukrainians who are running away from Russia, I mean, from the Russian invading forces inside of Ukraine, all have places to go. Right. Nobody is turning them away at their doorstep and saying, no, you have to go back to Ukraine. That's not happening anywhere. Right. And that's why this whole thing is so pernicious. Right. Caroline, it is always eye-opening and important talking to you and hearing your insights, so thank you very much. And I want to end on a positive note. It's a, it's a weird positive note. It's like a 180-degree positive note, okay. but you know me. That's, uh, I try to look into that. And again, as someone together with you who for years has been, uh, sees that the whole media reporting, the governmental international talk about Israel is totally skewed, total lies, not based on reality, not based on fact, not based on justice. And we're always alone out there talking against the narrative, against Israel. Little by little, I believe, one after two years of this crazy Wuhan virus, and now with this Ukraine-Russia mess, more and more people are waking up and realizing, wait, things do not make sense. We are not being, these official narratives we're being told that we must believe in, that we must choose a side, that it's the right moral thing to do. More and more people are waking up and realizing, wait, something is wrong. Now, where that's gonna take us, or that's gonna bring the salvation we all need to be saved from all this, if and when and how, no clue. But I do look at that as a positive. Oh, I do too, and I also think that, you know, the most important thing, and I felt that during the pandemic, and I feel it today, is that you have to go, when you're faced with a world that's full of lies, that you have to go with the things that you absolutely know are true. And so, you know, you have to take care of your family, you have to take care of your communities, you have to build out from inside and not rush around and try to slay dragons abroad. There are no dragons. Dragons are imaginary creatures, you know, and let's just keep it real. Let's understand that charity begins at home. Take care of your kids, take care of your family, take care of your communities and move out because we're just surrounded by so many lies from all directions that we just have to be very careful when we're making decisions about what to do, what is real, what is fake, because we've never been so inundated with lies before. Yeah. Words to live by. Caroline, a pleasure to be sitting with you again, the Caroline Glick Aviablo show here in our ancestral, biblical, eternal, and wonderful, beautiful Judean hills. And my dining room table. <laughs> Shalom, everyone. Thanks for watching. Take care. Pulse of Israel on frontline videos from the Holy Land. Support our work by donating today.